1: The dictum is simple. If you want to lose weight, eat fewer calories. But experience, and increasingly science, show that it's just not as simple as that. We take a look at what might be the most misleading measure in human health. And today, Uber is going public. The taxi industry is an old one, and each time it's been disrupted, ruthless competition draws in the regulators. We journey back to 17th century London to draw lessons for modern-day ride-hailing firms. first. Just as it seemed China and America were on the verge of striking a deal, the trade war has deepened. At midnight in Washington, Friday at noon in Beijing, America announced an increase in tariffs on billions of dollars' worth of Chinese goods. Earlier in the week, President Donald Trump had appeared sanguine.
2: By the way, you see the tariffs we're doing? Because they broke the deal. They broke the deal.
3: They broke the deal. And look, President Xi is a friend of mine, great guy, but he wa- he's for China. I'm for the USA. I'm for the USA. So, we're going to see. They come in tomorrow, and whatever happens, don't worry about it. It'll all work out. You know why? It always does. Don't worry about it.
4: Just one week ago, the general expectation was that it was nearly a done deal.
1: Simon Rabinovich is our Asia economics editor, based in Shanghai.
4: Steve Mnuchin, the uh, US Treasury Secretary, had said that negotiations were in their final laps. Uh, Basically, out of nowhere, uh, on Sunday, Donald Trump tweeted out that China was trying to renegotiate the deal. That then kicked off uh, several days of frantic speculation about what exactly had gone wrong, why it had gone wrong, um, whether or not talks that were scheduled for this week were were even going to take place. Uh, Now, we did have uh, a Chinese delegation start talks in Washington yesterday, Uh, The the lead trade negotiators from both countries met uh, for talks and then for dinner. Uh, That's the good news. The bad news uh, is that overnight, America went ahead as Donald Trump threatened and ratcheted up tariffs on imports from China. Um, So here we are today with talks still uh, ongoing, but under the cloud of the higher tariffs and uh, the Chinese response, which is that it is going to follow up with retaliation.
1: And so what is this latest trench of tariffs? What, what, what are they stipulating?
4: So the latest uh, trench is uh, America previously had applied tariffs of 25% on $50 billion worth of imports from China and of 10% on a further $200 billion. They've now increased that $200 billion tranche from 10% to 25%. China uh, has not officially announced its retaliation, but it's expected that it will undertake a proportionate retaliation.
1: And so what will the immediate impacts of, of those raised tariffs be?
4: Right. So, I mean, the way the way tariffs work is that when the good enters the country, uh, it's at the border that that tariff has to be paid. Now, there's then a question about who ultimately pays the tariff. Um, is the American buyer of the of the product from China able to get the Chinese supplier to? Cut their original price. In other words, the tariff is passed on to the to the Chinese supplier, uh, or is it the American buyer who pays the higher price, pays the tariff, uh, and then might try to pass it on to the consumer? You know what we know from analysis so far is that, by and large, the cost of the tariffs that have been implemented to date uh, have been picked up on the price tag in terms of extra costs for American consumers, and with this much broader range of tariffs that have been implemented overnight. Um, Some forecast that American consumer price inflation uh, might increase by as much as half a percentage point uh, in the next year. From the Chinese side, uh, you know, the the hit is going to be that export growth to America is going to slow. It's already basically turned negative. uh, And so that's expected to have knock-on consequences for Chinese growth. Um, Growth was expected to be, say, about 6.5% this year. With the current Tariffs that could now be uh, about six percent or so. That's that's the general expectation. So it's it is substantial.
1: Well, when President Trump uh, first threatened this this latest wave of tariffs, the, uh, the the Chinese stock market tanked. This time, it seems to have actually gone up. Why is that?
4: Well, I mean, on the week, the market is still down. So the flare up of the trade war is certainly not a positive thing for the market. Um, but I think there's there's two factors to bear in mind. So, uh, number one is that although the tariffs have been implemented, uh, talks are still ongoing. Uh, Liu He, who's the lead Chinese trade envoy, when he arrived in Washington for the talks, he was you know, very, very measured in his tone. I came here with sincerity. Under the current special circumstances, I hope to engage in rational and candid exchanges with the US side. Of course, China believes raising tariffs in the current situation is not a solution to the problem, but harmful to China, to the United States
2: and to the whole world.
4: And there is a certain degree of cautious optimism. You might say that you know although you've had this this big breakdown in communication between the two countries, um, there still is going to be a path to to a deal. The other factor uh, is that uh, you know for China, Exports to America are very important, but it's not the be all and end all for its economy. And likewise, uh, for America, supply chain running through China is important, but it's not the be all and end all. Um, and so, domestically, uh, the government and especially the central banks of, of both countries have the ability to adjust their policy um, depending on what's happening with with the trade war and with the external environment. So, uh, you know, the trade story is is important, but ultimately, it's. It's one factor in a much more kind of complex equation, uh, which, which determines how the economies perform.
1: I mean, if a deal isn't struck this time around, I mean, how, how bad for that is the trade war, just d- despite signs of optimism here and there?
4: Well, I mean, so here, here's the thing. I think you, you could almost look at the trade war, although this is the big focus of the day, as, as being a relatively narrow issue compared to all of the bigger problems in the Chinese-American relationship. So tariffs alone, you know, there ought to be a path to a resolution where the two countries agree over time to reduce tariffs because the short-term damage to the economy is just going to be too obvious. And that's something that that we still expect to happen at some point this year. But even if they are able to come to that kind of agreement, you know, narrowly on tariffs, you've got so many big fundamental issues between the two countries and this spiraling mistrust, which now, I know, encompasses everything from, you know, serious differences over uh, the nature of the political systems, the way they manage media, uh, the way that uh, they manage companies, the American belief that uh, China's state capitalism uh, is not something that's, you know, really a tenable part of, of the global economic order. Uh, and then, of course, concerns about China's uh, military expansion, its increasingly uh, aggressive posture uh, in Asia. So the the trade dispute is is one part of that. And traditionally. You know, there's always been hawks and doves in both countries, and the doves would point to the commercial and the trade relationship as the ballast of the bilateral ties. This is the thing that is supposed to be bringing the two countries together. And I guess the worrying thing uh, at one level about the trade war is that, you know, what was meant to be the glue between the two countries in this potentially very fractious relationship uh, has really come unstuck. Uh, And so, you know, resolving the tariffs that should be doable, but all these bigger issues, they're not going away.
1: Simon, thank you very much for joining us.
4: Thank you, Jason.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: For decades, people who want to control their weight have been told to count calories. Some women are just naturally thin. They don't gain weight no matter what they eat. Susan isn't one of those lucky ones. But given that the majority of calorie-focused diets fail, it's time to ask whether this scientific-sounding approach is misleading. Sticking to a diet is difficult in the beginning, but it soon becomes a habit.
2: The calorie system that we've had for more than a century is not just inaccurate, it's counterproductive and causes a lot of despair by making people feel But if they're not losing weight, then
1: it's their fault. They're too lazy and too greedy. Peter Wilson writes for 1843, The Economist's sister magazine.
2: It was an American agricultural chemist named Wilbur Atwater who really popularised the calorie back in the 1880s by doing a series of experiments which ended up with some very easily understood numbers telling people that if you eat a gram of fat, there will be nine calories in it. If you eat carbs and fiber, there'll be four calories in it. And that took off. And that came to dominate the way people thought about food and weight control. Because what the calorie is, is a measure of the energy in food. And that's what we think. We think primarily about the quantity of what's in our food rather than the quality. And that was very appealing. And that got built into a lot of diet books, into government advice, into public health advice, into databases. And it's just so deeply entrenched in the food systems around the world now that it's this giant monster that's hard to stop.
1: Salvador Camacho is one of those who has struggled with his weight.
5: At the beginning, it was supposed to be only a robbery, so they asked for things or money wallets. His
1: problems were exacerbated by an armed kidnapping in his hometown in Mexico. But
5: at some point, they thought it was a good idea to take us with them and so they may stay in the car. So they took us to this abandoned field outside the city. Then they take us out of the car and they said they would take turns to kill us. They took my friend and they were like, don't worry, your time will come as well. I guess I blacked out, I fainted, I don't know.
1: When Salvador came round, his kidnappers had fled. But affected by the trauma, his weight ballooned by 33 kilos. That's more than 70 pounds.
5: I was thinking to myself, why should I restrain myself from eating that food or drinking some beer or wine or whatever, if I'm not sure if I'm going to live tomorrow?
1: A cardiologist warned him the strain he was putting on his heart could be fatal.
5: I was 30, 31, something like that. And he said, you're quite young, but your situation is quite critical. And if you don't do something, I really don't think you may get it to the 40s.
1: Salvador embarked on a calorie-restricted diet. He became obsessed, keeping spreadsheets and taking photographs of his meals. He exercised relentlessly, training for and running a marathon. But he couldn't keep the weight off. His doctors offered little hope.
5: Basically, all of them tell me the same story. Either you are lying on the quantity of exercise you're doing, or you're lying on the quantity of calories you're eating, or you are condemned to be overweight your whole life because of my genes somehow. So I believe that story. And I said, yeah, probably that's my fate.
2: Not only are
1: the numbers wrong, but the way we measure them and explain them to consumers are wrong. Peter Wilson says the focus on calories meant Salvador's diet was always doomed. Labels are almost certainly wrong. Every bit of research shows that you would be
2: incredibly lucky to have those numbers come within 10% of their real content. And these are labels that say... You know, there are 327 calories in this sandwich. Well, you know, it's just not reliable. The devices we use to measure how many calories we're burning are just wildly inaccurate. You know, you'll be on the rowing machine and it'll tell you, you have just burned 364 calories. Well, that's just rubbish. And that's quite apart from the even bigger problem, which is that it's not about calories. It's about how these foods react and interact within the body. And the fact that sugar is very different from fat, is very different from protein, is very different from other carbohydrates.
1: I mean, increasingly, sugar is being seen as the the sort of bad actor in all of this.
2: Yes. In the 1970s, the sugar industry beat the fat lobby by making sure that most of the blame went on to fat. Since then, we've seen this huge development of low-fat foods. And since then, we've seen this huge boom in obesity and diabetes. And it's no coincidence, because when they take the fat out of foods and make food products, they have to replace it with something, and they replace it with sugar, salt, and starch. And only now are we becoming fully aware of quite how bad
1: sugar is for us. After three years of dedicated calorie counting, Salvador changed tack.
5: I was feeling myself with this kind of low-fat yogurt, low-fat milk, bread uh, sandwiches, but with the lean turkey...
1: He met a group of people who, like him, exercised frequently. But instead of limiting their calories, they ate natural foods rather than the processed foods he'd been eating before.
5: I quit eating bread, sausages and stuff, and then I was only eating vegetables, fruits, a lot of nuts, and meats. At the beginning, I was feeling also a little bit anxious, like, how many calories am I eating? I don't know. But at some point I came to realize that it was indeed not important because I ate every time I was hungry and I was losing weight constantly in a very high speed.
1: (laughs) Peter, based on what you've learned, what's the best way of of thinking about food, of consuming food to, to deal with weight problems? It's really simple. It's
2: don't eat when you're not hungry. Eat when you are hungry. Eat food, not food products. Try to avoid processed foods eat natural food, obviously you can cut down on sugar. That's the first really easy gain. But otherwise, it's just being aware of what you're eating and why and taking a more nuanced approach rather
1: than just counting calories. Yeah, but sometimes the why is I just really want this sweet thing. I just really want a can of this soda. I really want this cookie. But but they're habits.
2: They're habits that you have taught your body to expect and accept, and you can change your behavior. You lose those cravings. Once you get your regular Coke out of your system, you find you just don't want it anymore.
1: And that's what you found? I mean, you followed your own advice here, right?
2: Very much so. I haven't cut back on uh, alcohol at all, but I've cut soft drinks totally out. I've moved to uh, more natural foods. And in the process of researching this story, I've lost 28 pounds, which is no bad thing. I'd been told I was pre-diabetic and to lose weight, and I'd never been able to. And I've been able to do it without any willpower, without any huge effort, just by thinking
1: twice about what I'm eating. And the important part is you've, you've kept it off.
2: Without any trouble whatsoever. I think my body has reset the weight it's trying to keep me at. I'm not fluctuating, which I'd always done before. I'm just nice and stable and I'm never hungry. I'm not as tired. I sleep better. It's a good thing to lose 28 pounds.
1: Peter, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. You can pick up the latest issue of 1843 from next Wednesday. Uber is going public today. It's set to be the largest IPO since 2014, with the ride-hailing giant targeting a valuation of $82 billion. But currently, Uber is making big losses, almost $8 billion since 2009. Henry Trix writes Schumpeter, our column about business. He's been taking a ride back through history to see how other cabbies have fared in the face of competition and regulation.
3: John Taylor was a waterman, which is a company of boatmen that took passengers across the river Thames in London in the 1600s. It was a difficult time for John Taylor because this was just when carriages had emerged. And this was really hitting the waterman's business. Now, John Taylor was a fabulous character. He was a poet, and he really hated these carriages. And he wrote a couple of screeds against them. It railed against these upstart hell coaches. Against the ground we stand and knock our heels whilst all our profit runs away on wheels.
1: I mean, what this makes me think of is the way that black cab drivers themselves now are railing against the ride-hailing industry.
3: Yes, it's an industry that's born from moaning (laughs) about (laughs) competition. So Uber now is trying to kind of become more of an official business by listing on the stock exchange. There's obviously a lot of investor interest in that. It's going to be the big IPO of the year. And yet, in the process of... You know, competing against the black cabs and the yellow cabs. It's also lost a ton of money. Just last year alone, in the 12 months to March, it lost $3.7 billion. And so Uber will do its best to try and convince everyone that there is a, a bright future ahead. But when you look back at the history of the taxi industry, you see that. Whenever it's unregulated and unlicensed, it becomes completely cutthroat. It is really difficult to make money. And it's only really when the regulators move in and start setting fares that this becomes a sensible, sane, sustainable
1: business. $3.9 billion. It's, it's a, an eye-watering amount, Henry. How does a company even lose that much money?
3: Well, I guess the simple answer is that Uber's strategy from the beginning has been to sacrifice profits in the interest of undercutting everyone it can so it can get as many passengers as possible and sweep up the drivers that are available. A first mover into disrupting a taxi industry can make pretty good money. When Uber moved in, there was a path to profitability the trouble is is that the competition emerged very quickly. This is a market without huge barriers to entry. Remember, Uber doesn't really own its fleets. The drivers own their fleets. So, basically anyone can come in as a competitor. This is where it's basically become a race, a race to the bottom. And we have seen this Race before the historical example, which I find absolutely fascinating, was, um, was New York in, in the depression. So the Model T Ford was there, was available, was relatively cheap, and a lot of immigrants they bought the Model T and they turned them into taxis. This was before the licensing of, of taxis in New York. More and more people managed to get whatever they could together in order to buy cheap cars. And the streets became mayhem. Um, And this ultimately led to the licensing and the medallion system started.
1: So basically, when there are too many cabbies out there, nobody can make any money and regulators have to fix things.
3: Yes, that's the reality. But this is as yet a reality that we're not seeing in the case of the ride-hailing services because at the moment they're treated very differently from the established cab companies in many cities.
1: And so how do you see the, the Uber story playing out from here? It's trying to list but revealing that it's lost all of this money. Is it going to pull its way out, do you think?
3: Uber has a lot going for it, not least the name, right? I mean, we basically see... Uber as being synonymous with ride hailing. It's the Uber for Uber. <laughs> it's the Uber for Uber. And uh, brand really helps. You know, if you think of taxis, you think of your your black cabs in, in London or your le- yellow cabs in New York, those colours are like brands, right? And people are attracted by them and people see them as being secure. You know, Uber will want, definitely, to win over passengers just because of its name, its sense of service quality. So there are ways that it thinks it can make money, but, you know, the competition remains a big problem.
1: Henry, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you, Jason.